Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm glad to welcome a friend and former colleague onto the show. Eric Drozd is a name familiar to many in my hometown of Waterloo Region. For close to three years, he hosted the region's biggest talk radio show on 570 News. We got to work together when I was anchoring weekends and then reporting during the week. He was 28 when he stepped into that role, the kind of role that many spend a career hoping to get a chance in. And he built a reputation around conversation, not the kind of guy that's looking to pull in ratings based on shock value or belittling you or trying to come across as smarter than you. Just conversation. He got pretty good at it. And then he did something few expected. He walked away. Eric had another dream, one he'd held on to for years and years. He wanted to be a police officer. Here's his story. I've been trying to figure out what compels a person to choose the two career paths that are probably the most scrutinized. People (laughs) have tons of opinions of of how you're doing your job and usually of how you're doing it wrong. (laughs) What what goes into your head in in going down these, these two roads in your life? Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, for me, I, I think it was more that I've always wanted to be a police officer. And broadcasting, I had never thought about until, oddly enough, I was working uh, in a job to try to further my goal of becoming a police officer. And then I was, you know driving a car around it was I was doing like a security job driving a car around at night and I just started listening to the radio to try to keep myself awake and it was a talk show and I fell in love with it and I was like like I looked forward to going to in into shift just so I could listen to this radio show so I thought like after a while you know I was younger and and you think to yourself like policing is a pretty difficult profession to get into uh, and I was young, and I was turned down earlier on, right? There's, so you know, they basically said, "Go get, go get some more life experience." So I thought to myself, "Okay, what I'm going to do? All oh, this radio thing sounds cool." So I, I don't think I thought about it like in a criticizing light. So the more likely path, of course, being a talk show host, that's a more right, right, right. <laughs> there's many talk show host openings up too. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I had no idea about what radio was about or broadcasting right. was about, right? I just thought it sounded cool, right? So. I thought, okay, I'll go. I'll go back to college. I'll go back. So I, you know, I went back to Conestoga College, uh, and I did the uh, broadcasting program there. And then, and then I kind of just got lucky, and I got a job locally, and it kind of just all worked out for me, right? I, I had no idea where it was going to go. I just thought, hey, I'm going to do this because I kind of always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a police officer, and I knew at some point I was going to go and try to become a police officer again. But then I fell in love with radio, right? So it ended up being a really hard decision, much harder than I thought it would be at first. But you're you're, you're right; we get criticized a lot in both jobs. <laughs> you're uh, yeah. Uh, so I figure after here, it's either uh, politician, NFL referee, or elementary school teacher, or high school NFL teacher. Referee? There's the scrutiny right there. Oh, true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. If you want to continue in that line. Uh, you're a Mississauga guy. Yeah. Before that, uh, yeah. I came from Poland. Yeah. Uh, where did that love for you begin of, of thinking, I want to be in uniform as a police officer? You know, it's, and I'm going to, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I thought to myself, I'm, you know, I don't want to give the kind of the standard, it's a calling type of question because it kind of sounds cheesy. But in a way, whatever, I think the calling is just a term that people use to describe that feeling that you get. You know what I mean? So whatever you want to call that, uh, I have it. You know, like I, I, I don't remember ever sitting down and saying to myself, man, what am I going to do with my life? Oh, maybe I'll be a police officer. Like I just kind of knew, right? Like I, I remember growing up in Mississauga and... Uh, my parents took me to. We we were new Canadians. Uh, my parents. Uh, I I was born in Poland, but so so yeah. How how long had you lived there before you moved to Mississauga? Uh, so I came to Canada when I was six. So born in Poland, came to Canada when I was six, and so I ended up growing up in Mississauga. But early on, like when I was young, like not long after I came, I remember my parents uh, taking me one weekend to like one of those. Uh, 
community events, right? I, I don't, I can't, can't even remember what kind of event it was, but there was a cruiser there, right? Like there was a Peel Regional cruiser, and there was police officers, and they were handing out recruiting flyers. And of course, at that time, I'm like seven or eight, right? So I'm not applying, but I, I remember this officer turning on lights of the cruiser and letting kids go in and sit there and everything. And at that point, I remember, like, I remember that, and I remember thinking this is so cool. This is so awesome. Right. And I remember looking at those officers there and even at that age, probably not in as many thoughts and words, but I remember that feeling of like, wow, these people put on this stuff every day and they go out there and they, they keep us safe. Right. That's like the earliest memory I have of, of, I think what ended up translating into wanting to have a career in policing. What part of uh, Poland did you come from? Uh, it's, uh, so it's, a, it's the southeastern part of Poland, so it's closer to the Ukraine border, a town called Dreszów, a uh, small town uh, by, I think, Canadian standards, or maybe not, I think it's like 120,000, it's probably the size of Guelph, like, yeah. like that kind of, that size. So yeah, I still, uh, still have a bunch of friends back there. and Memories too from, from that young, or is it more memories that you've made since then of knowing yeah. that? Yeah, I have a couple of memories from back in Poland, mainly just uh, like sitting in my grandfather's lap and and uh, he was a taxi driver. So he he drove uh, he drove a taxi. But back in Poland, they drove these like pickup truck. I remember these like pickup truck taxis. And I, I never understood why they were taxi drivers, but they drove pickup trucks like it was just so it was such a weird thing. But I remember like uh, he would take me out sometime and when when he was doing runs and, and I'd be sitting there in the passenger seat and stuff. So I don't other than that, like I've been back to Poland a couple of times. And so I have memories from that. But from before I immigrated to Canada, not much in the way of uh, yeah, not much in the way of memories other than playing a lot of soccer, because that's what you did in Poland. Right. So six years old, I don't have much memories yeah. before that time either. Yeah. Um, were you the kind of kid that was a crossing guard or I'm trying to think of like early parallels to somebody who's going to be a police officer, the kind of serve and protect mentality uh, of, of volunteering in scouts or, or something like that. I don't know what the parallels would be. No, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I was a crossing guard at one point in my in my career, but that was like I was way older, not when I was like a young um, hall monitor, maybe. Like that's like the closest thing I can think of. Like I enjoy uh, this. it, It may sound a little bit weird, but I've always had this. I've always had this like protective thing about like does that make any sense? Like like I've always wanted to like if if there was ever a group activity, like I always like being the person that kind of like makes sure that everyone is on track and everybody's kind of like sticking to the same goal and 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 I've always had that kind of feeling in me so I think that works really well with what I do right now right because we get to a scene and and it's that's what it's about it's about taking control and it's about keeping everybody there and containing it and and trying to figure out what's going on right so uh but in terms of like memories of things that I did that I could like (laughs) I'd be stretching I'd be really stretching right now so you had your your career path in mind from an early early enough age. Yeah. I want to be a police officer. You, you mentioned uh, you you worked as a security guard for yeah. some time. What was the path in your head that was going to get you to that place before you got into radio? Right. So uh, so after high school, I uh, I went to the University of Windsor and. I knew that I wanted to go into like kind of the law field, right? And policing was always there, right? But I was for a while there. I was thinking about maybe, maybe wanting to go legal and go the lawyer route. And so I, I ended up uh, studying criminology and sociology at the University of Windsor. And then once I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer, I kind of came back after university and I was living back at home. And now I would have been what, early 20s at that point, right? So now it's like your parents are like, all right, what are you going to do, right? Like now you're back and what are you going to do? And so I thought, okay, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to be a police officer. But again, I was early 20s, not much in the way of life experience, right? Like I had the school, but I didn't really have much in the way of life experience. Uh, still living at home, right? So not paying rent really uh, and uh, doing some volunteering, but really not as much as I should have been. So I thought, okay, what is kind of like the closest thing to policing where you can get some kind of experience where you can go in an interview and say, well, you know, I've, I've done patrols and I've written reports and I've taken statements from people and things like that, right? So I thought naturally security, right? And everyone you talk to tells you, oh, security isn't bad, right? Like yeah. go do security. It's not bad. 
So I uh, had a buddy that was doing it, and he's he, he got me in. Uh, and it was mobile security, so it was even better. I was driving one of those security cars around, right? We were responding to commercial and residential alarms. And I thought that was good experience. And it was. It was a good experience. But it opened my eyes to radio as well. Like that was, It's so weird the way things work out now that I'm looking back at it. Like I did that for policing, and then I took like a six-year side road <laughs> into broadcasting and then back into policing yeah kind of crazy uh any stories from that security guard job of of um having to respond at all hours of the night or, yeah. or anything that comes to mind yeah oh yeah i mean it was uh it was at times it, it was exciting at times it was boring uh because there were there were just a lot of patrols a lot of sites that we looked after i worked nights so i worked from midnight to noon uh, 12 hours, four days a week. So it got a little bit, it got, you know, you needed a lot of coffee, a lot of Timmy's, right, to get through. At the same time, one of my buddies said to me, you know what would be a great idea? So I met, I met some, so once I got into security, I met another guy that was already working there, but he was also a doorman at a nightclub in Mississauga. And he said, you know, if you want to be a cop, you know what would be a great idea? You, you should come work at the club, right? I could get you... Uh, look at me. I'm not re- really a big guy or anything like that, right? And he's asking me to be a bouncer at a nightclub. So I thought, okay, am I going to do this? Uh, and I did. And sure enough, I, I got hired there. So I was, working, I was working two jobs. And all I remember for like three years is not seeing the sun. And because I always worked oh. nights, right? Yeah. I, I would always, I, I, with the security company, I'd, I'd start at midnight. And then the days that I wasn't working... Typically, like a Friday and Saturday, I'd start at eleven yeah. at the at the nightclub, and I did that. So, but that was that was really good experience as well because you see a lot of things happen at a nightclub. There's there's a lot of shenanigans that go on after everybody starts getting let out. So there's some good experience there, some hands on stuff, right? So I think that all eventually helped through the through the actual process of getting hired as a police officer. When does the I want to call it like a happy accident of radio come along of, of thinking in your head, maybe I'll go down this road and try this out now. So I applied. So yeah. what happened was I, I was working those two jobs and I thought I'm ready. I'm going to apply. So I applied to Peel regional police and they essentially told me like, it's great that you're doing these things, but you need, you need more life experience. Right. And they, they never really say what that is. Like, what is life experience? Right. right. Like, does that mean traveling does that mean buying a home and paying bills? Does that mean getting married? Does that mean having kids? Like who, like what exactly does mm-hmm. life experience mean? And I remember thinking that when, when I got turned down, like what does life experience mean? And they didn't tell you. No, they didn't tell you. They just say, go get some more life experience, right? You're, you're 22 or 23 or however old I was. And, uh, you know, we are, you know, the average age. I remember the recruiter then telling me that the average age of hire of a police officer in Ontario was 28. I was the average age, right? So I thought, okay, I have like five, six years here where I need to do something. I don't want to sit still and keep working these two jobs because that'll just look the same when I go to reapply. I need to do something. And so have you ever listened to the radio show uh, called Coast to Coast? CBC program? No, no, no it's not a C. It's an American uh, program. It's like a paranormal. This is going to no, sound no, so okay. weird. The paranormal program overnight. Okay. It's it's called Coast to Coast AM. Art Bell. It's probably because you're listening at overnight and I'm, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> 1 to 4 AM. Yeah. So Coast to Coast AM, it's, a, it's, it's basically a program about like paranormal things, right? Like the unexplained and all this, right? Which I never was really into. But when you're working at night and you're kind of looking up and down the dial to, to listen to something between 1 and 4, mm-hmm. this program caught my attention and George Norrie was the host. He still is right now, actually. Uh, this is like a nationally syndicated. They're on like 600 radio stations yeah. across the globe. Anyway, so I started listening to that. And the, the way that George interviewed people and the way that he kind of phrased his questioning and he kind of just let people talk. He, he, didn't, he didn't intervene. He, didn't, he never slammed his hand on the desk. You know, he never got angry with people that he disagreed with. And other shows I listen to, people would do that, right? And sometimes it's part of the shtick, and other times it's just the way people are. But I, that, that's, that wasn't me. I never really liked that. George kind of just asked the questions, and then he would listen. And then he would respectfully say, 
you know, well, you know, I, I disagree with that, but, you know, you're here because I called you to be here, so, you know, I want to get your take on this, right? He wouldn't agree with much of what his, his guests would say, but he, but, he would, but he would let them talk, right? And then people would call in, and then he'd let people make their own decisions. And I really like that. Like, I really like that about him. And so when I started thinking about radio, because I had this, these, these five or six years where I probably should do something with my life if I, if I ever wanted to be a police officer, I thought, well, let's, let's, start, learn, let's start looking things up about broadcasting and radio and, and let's, let's you know, try to get into a program, take the two years and then try to get a few years experience before I apply again. And as weird as it sounds, that, like a paranormal show was kind of the first reason why I started thinking about broadcasting. It's kind of weird. So, so then from there, you go on to Conestoga College? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. went on to Conestoga College, applied. Uh, my, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, was uh, we were living in Guelph. She was, she was going to the veterinary college there. And uh, so we were living in Guelph, and I said, hey, I'm going to apply to Conestoga for the radio broadcast program. And I did, and I got in. Uh, they still had an interview process, which was kind of, mm. I didn't, I wasn't, I'd like, I just, I was expecting to put an application and like, Hey, tell us why you want to be here type thing. But then I got called by Mike Thurnell, who was uh, running the radio station there and said, Hey, come in for an interview. So I did an interview, got in, spent two years there, made a bunch of friends, made a bunch of, uh, connections in the community in the, in the, in the radio world. Uh, as you know, it's a, it's a small industry mm. and graduated in 2012 I want to say and then just got lucky got hired as a as a part-time reporter at 570 and and then the rest is kind of history as they say what was your first time I'm sure you remember your first time cracking the microphone as they say when you're live on the air was that at Conestoga was that at 570 where did it happen um well, the first time I ever was live on the air was at was at Conestoga mm-hmm. at 88.3 CJIQ. Uh, I ended up hosting the morning show there with a guy named Gord St. Denis, who's a good friend of mine now and up in Ottawa doing really well. But uh, it was so much fun. Like, it was a blast, right? It's college radio, right? So uh, you, you did the... Uh, the journalism one, right? Uh, 106.9 The X FM, in, London, Ontario. London, Ontario. Yeah. But you did the journalism. But uh, yeah, we, 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 weren't, right? we weren't the radio hosts uh, kicking jokes and having yeah, you fun. Guys, yeah. you, guys, you guys were the people that looked down at the radio folks, right? Like these guys are just spinning tunes, right? You guys were right. doing hard, hard journalism. The newsies, yeah. <laughs> the newsies. It's funny that I ended up in news. But uh, yeah, so my first ever experience on air would have been at CJIQ, but the funny story about the first ever time I went on air at 570 News, which is where, did I swear? Uh, no, no, I didn't swear, but the clips wouldn't play. Hmm. Uh, out, of, out of the system that you do, out of the Burley system, the clips wouldn't play. And so there was a lot of dead air, I remember. And uh, Tiffany Hensby was the one who was training me at the time. And she, uh, she put me on the air. I was doing, it was like the 7 o'clock newscast or whatever, right after the afternoon news, like that 7 o'clock newscast. And I went in, and I was so excited, right, and nervous, like really nervous. And I remember turning on the microphone, and that, that stinger played, you know, this is 570 News. And, and I went on, and I said, good evening, you know, it's this time, whatever, here's what's making news. And I went into the first story and I was reading it and everything was going great. And Tiffany was sitting beside me. And then I went, you know, and -and so-and-so said, blah, 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 blah. And I hit that clip and nothing, right? And I remember sitting there staring at the computer and nothing played. And then I kind of turned and looked at Tiffany, who was to my left. And she kind of was doing something else. And she noticed that there was silence. So she looked back at me and, and she, you know, kind of shrugged her shoulders and like, what, right? And I went back to the screen and I clicked the, uh, the, the clip again, nothing. And then so she skips out of her chair, right, runs over. And then later, like after all this was done, we went and listened back to this. And you can hear everything. You can hear her ruffling their papers, her chair moving and everything. So she runs up, right, and she's hovering over my shoulder. And, she's, and you can hear the mouse clicking. And you can hear the whispering on air now to her, just go, just go, just keep going, just keep going, right? So I just skipped over the clip, kept reading, went to the next story, got to the clip, clicked it, nothing, right? And it was just the same thing over and over again. News was supposed to be like four and a half minutes. It ended up being like... 
like a minute 20 long because there was no clips and uh and then and then it just i threw it back and the board op at the time was great and they went into whatever program was after but later we realized that burley was recording the whole time so the clips uh-huh. don't play when Burley, oh, Burley records. Okay. Like it was in record mode. Uh-huh. So it was recording the whole time. And when it's in record mode, it doesn't play the clips. That was my first time ever on, on 570 <laughs> First, News. Time, on the first time ever on a, at a quote-unquote real radio station. I, I hope you save that audio clip somewhere. I think I have yeah. it somewhere, yeah. I think <laughs> I do. <laughs> so you, you start out doing the reporting stuff. Yeah. Um, what's your gig? You're going out and you're, you're interviewing people, getting the stories. What's sort of the, the first role that you have there so i got hired when i was uh still in first year at conestoga so i was doing the uh, broadcast radio program was in first year uh, got hired in the summer so right when first year was finished i got hired part-time it was a reporting gig so i would uh, essentially uh yeah i would i would gather stories for the evening there was an evening shift an evening reporter shift at the time and so I would come in, I think, I think it was like five. So I got hired with like about a month left of school before the summer. So I worked at 570 and went to school for but like about a month. And I remember, so I'd go to school in the morning, I'd host the morning show. Then after the morning show, I'd go to class. And then after all my classes, I'd hop in my car and I'd drive straight to 570. And then I would do the 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. reporting shift And sometimes that meant going out and, you know, getting clips or streeters, right, Mm -hmm. from people. Other times that would just mean, you know, uh, reporting from in the studio or leaving stories for the next morning, you know, recording stories and leaving them for the next morning for the morning news. Uh, It it was it was a variety of that. Right. And then 11 o'clock came along and I'd drive back to Guelph, go to sleep for a few hours. I'd wake up and I'd drive back to Conestoga to do the morning show again. It was a crazy time. And then after the summer, during the summer, I also got hired. Uh, CJIQ has positions Mm -hmm. that they hire for in the summer. So I got hired to do the uh, afternoon show, uh, sorry, the midday show there and do production. So I was doing that during the day and then working evenings at 570 for the whole summer and then got hired full time at the beginning of second year. So so CJIQ, when you were doing that summer job, that's that's your being your classic music disc jockey, you're playing tunes. Yeah, Yeah, it was uh, it was a midday. Uh, it was a midday show. I think it was, I want to say like 10 to 1, uh, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., uh, the midday show, which was, it was a rock station. Are you picking the music or is it, is no, it pre-programmed? It was programmed. Mike, Th- Mike Thurnell was the program director. It was all programmed in. I mean, sometimes we would sneak in a song if, if you were, you know, if you still had some time before the top of an hour right. or something, you'd sneak in a song. But I was doing that and I was doing production. So I was doing all of the commercials and, and uh, imaging and, and all that you know, with the big voice guy, right, and making it sound all fun and cool. Uh, so I was doing that as well. That was, that was a really cool job, too, because there's a lot of people that listen to CJIQ, mm. like specifically for the music. The on-air yeah. talent, I mean, isn't the greatest, right? Because we're all in school, right? We're right, all going right, through yeah. school. But the music was great because it was like an alt-rock type of sound. And so people listened to it for the music. So that was kind of cool. And then in September, when that work placement finished, we started second year and uh, which was a lot more hands-on right that's when like you're pretty much running the radio station the second years run the radio station and then I got offered a full-time job at 570 and I became a traffic reporter at that point so how how did you get into the news side of things out of being the the music guy first of all yeah when I got into radio so when I when I got into it you know I I told you a story about George Norrie and how that kind of sparked it uh but when I was working that security shift, I also listened to every morning show, right? Mm-hmm. Because it would roll, I would still be working. It was a midnight to 12 shift and all the morning shows started at five. So after coast to coast AM finished, I flipped to all the morning shows were starting and I wanted to be a morning show guy. Like that's what I wanted to do. Okay. Yeah. So it's funny that you ask, like, how did you get in news? Because I still ask myself that question today. Like, how did I end up in news? And I think it, all it has to do with is the fact that news stations even though there's less of them have more people employed i just think there's more opportunity in news because it takes people to be able to run a news station especially a station like 570 news or like a 680 news in toronto where it's constant news uh you need people Mm -hmm. and so there are a lot more kind of entry-level 
on-air jobs than at an FM music station where, you know, you have the morning show, you maybe have a midday show in-house, you have an afternoon show, and maybe an evening show, right? right. So there's really five spots at an FM station yeah. when you can have 10 or 12 at, at an AM station, at a news station, right? So I think that's just the way it happened. And Paul Scott, I got to mention Paul Scott because he is, he's been such a huge influence on my life. He was uh, a coordinator at, in, the, in the broadcast radio program at Conestoga College. And he taught on-air announcing and just a, just a huge inspiration in, in my life, in, in, in the kind of broadcast area of my life. Uh, and just as a person as well, just a great guy. You know, he told me when, uh, when I had a conversation with him at Conestoga, just, just don't say no to a gig. Don't say no, because you never know where that's going to lead you, right? So when I applied to 570, I didn't apply for a news job. I applied for a board op position, Mm -hmm. and somebody heard my voice somewhere, and I got an email from the news director at the time saying, hey, do you have a news demo? I know you applied for this board op position, but do you have a news demo? And I didn't, so I ran back into the station, and I recorded a news demo, and I sent it back to him, and he said... I kind of like this. Like, have you considered, have you considered doing news? And I went, no, didn't really consider it. And he's like, okay, well, you know, let me sit on this for a bit. And sure enough, I got a call back and he's like, yeah, I'd like to offer you that, that part-time reporter position. Right. So, but how I, so that's how I got into it by yep. not saying no, that's essentially how it happened. Cause I had no, honestly, I would sound like I was gunning for a news position. It just kind of happened. And I remember Paul Scott saying, don't say no, because once you're in there, there's other stations, people know people, and that's how you get into things, right? So it wasn't some big thing, you know what I mean? It just kind of happened, yeah. So, and then that, that first full-time, was the morning traffic, or was it was it another traffic position? What, what specifically? The, the, yeah, the, the first full-time ended up being morning traffic. Morning traffic. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's a hot seat position, because that's what people are listening for. They want to know what their drive is going to be like. Right. How did you find that? Uh, overwhelming. It, yeah. it, was, it was overwhelming, uh, going from... A part-time reporter position to a full-time traffic position. I mean, what I loved about it was that it was stable with shifts and all that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because like in any any job, when you're working part-time, your shifts are kind of jumbled, right? But this was a Monday to Friday. I think it was 5 a.m. to, to 11 or something like mm-hmm. that, right? 11.30. And it was crazy. And it was, and it was more airtime, which is, which is because I, again, it was one of those things when I was offered the morning traffic position, I had never thought about doing morning traffic, but again, it was offered to me. Right. And I thought to myself, well, wait, you know, I'm kind of getting good at this reporting thing. I like this. I could see myself being a full-time reporter. I kind of got into anchoring a little bit there on the weekends as well. I kind of like that. I said, I I could see myself being an anchor as well, even though I didn't have the strongest read, but I kind of wanted to do it. Uh, So then the way it was kind of said to me was, well, you know, this morning traffic gig will get will get you more airtime. It'll get you cracking the mic every 10 minutes. Like you say, it's Mm -hmm. what people listen to. A lot of people listen on the ones uh, for their traffic. So it's more airtime. You're going to be cracking it, you know, four times or five times an hour or whatever. And, and, and it's, and it's, and it was busy, right? Like mm-hmm. it's busy in the mornings, right? So, uh, it was a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's fast paced. Uh, you get to work with the morning crew, which are typically people who are really experienced and they know, you know, like Lisa Drew and Glenn Pelche and Paul McPhee and all these people that I had a chance to work with is fantastic because they're such strong on air. And when you want to be on air, you want to be around people that are so strong on air. So it was great. And it was fast paced, right? Highway closes down. You had to, you had to do all these alerts and everything. So I loved it. It was great. When does the talk show happen for you? So as, as, as fun as morning traffic was, and as as cool as reporting was, like I have opinions, you know what I mean? Like I just I've always had opinions. And in the morning, I you know, we'd be when I wasn't on air in the morning, we'd always be talking about some you, you always talk about something with with your colleagues. Right. And we'd get into little friendly discussions mm-hmm. about things. And, and uh, you know, you get into little friendly disagreements with people. Right. And another thing that Paul Scott told me at Conestoga was if you want something, you got to let your bosses know, right? Because otherwise, if you're in a position where you're doing a good job, what is what is the point of taking you out of that position? You're doing a good job. So if you want something more, you have to make sure that they know about it. Mm-hmm. So 
Pete Travers was the uh, program director at the time at 570 News. And, and I remember just pestering him all the time about, hey, you know, hey, like when when Jeff Allen or Gary Doyle are off, uh, you know, why don't uh, why don't I slide in, in their chair? You know, you don't always have to go to I can't remember who I think he was going to Michelle Dyer at the time. Okay, and yeah. and and uh, and Michelle actually should get a shout out, too, because uh, she uh, she she ended up doing an evening show and and uh, we became friends and she would she would pull me onto her show all the time and and she kind of vouched for me too in terms of the talk uh, stuff so uh but uh but yeah i just kept pestering the bosses i just said i want i kind of want something more four hours is a long time to do a talk show i think gary's show at the time was three hours but either way like it's a long time mm-hmm. there's a lot of content but i kept pestering pete i kept saying like hey when they're sick or they're off or on vacation like give me a shot and eventually i did and and that he did and it kind of just took off from there right so when they decided to make a change i was just approached that's it like nothing nothing glamorous i was just approached <laughs> i mean and, and so the morning radio that's airtime four hours of talk yeah. show is yeah. a lot of airtime to yeah. fill yeah how did you find that adjustment of of being able to keep talking while that light's going well, I think you could tell. I can, I can kind of just talk, right? right. No, but, but uh, it's a good question because it was so overwhelming at the time. I remember the, the day where the change was made. I remember just being told, okay, you're going to do the show the next day. And I thought, like the next day? Or you mean like next week today? Mm-hmm. And they said, no, like tomorrow, the next day. And, and obviously you have nothing prepared. So I remember going to the producer at the time and, and, and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. And we put a show together. And that first show that I did, I remember being so overwhelmed by, uh, by the amount of talking that you had to do. And it's one thing to just talk. And it's another thing to know what you're talking about and, and be able to talk, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So what I didn't realize, which probably sounds pretty straightforward to most people, is how much reading is involved with being a talk show host because you just constantly have to read. If you're not reading, then you don't know things. And then when you get stuck on something uh, on the air, you don't have anything to fall back on, right? Whereas if you're well-read, then you'll always be able to make it work. You'll always be able to spin the conversation into something else. And uh, I remember it being very overwhelming. I remember people hating it to be quite honest Uh with you i remember people telling me that they hated it i remember people emailing me and telling me and and tweeting me and all this and there was a point there where you're like i can't do this right because there's it was just too overwhelming because it was so negative at the time and it's not like i blame listeners for being upset i would be upset too if you know, there was two people let go that I listened to every day for 10 years and all of a sudden they weren't there and there's this new guy, right? So I would be upset too. But, but you know, over time, kind of worked through that, ended up being okay. But that first kind of, uh, I want to say six months of the show, it was just kind of like, just go on and just, let's just fill the time. Let's just do it, right? Because it's just going to take time. There's nothing else to, right? It'll just take time, so... What was the funniest or most out there insult you heard about yourself? Whether it was an email or a, a tweet or oh, man, somebody you're calling put in. Me on the spot. <laughs> you're gonna put me on the spot with that kind of stuff. Um, that's a good question. There are just so many. Like most of them are. I'll be honest. Most of them are just nasty. Mm-hmm. But there were a few. There were a few funny ones or out there one. Uh, like I, I remember doing the show, and I think it was. I was like a year and a half in at the time and somebody still thought I was Gary Doyle. Like I got an email saying like, Gary, what are you talking about? And I'm like, dude, I'm not Gary. I, you know, I've been doing this show. Gary hasn't been here for a year and a half. I remember that. But I also remember people, people at first, like the emotion was raw. Like people sent me emails at first saying like, I don't know who you are and I'm not saying it's your fault. And I mean, Clearly, it wasn't my fault. It's mm-hmm. not like I was gunning for anything. It just kind of happened. It was decisions made well beyond me. It's, it's uh, not you don't have these guys hostage. In no, 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 right? It's like it's decisions made by people with pay grades well above me. Uh, but people, like their emotion was raw. And I guess this is kind of speaks to the power of radio. Mm-hmm. People really love radio. You know, despite what, you know, in today's world, the technology and the internet and all that, people still really love their radio. So at first, the emails were really raw, like, 
I'm never listening to the station again. Mm-hmm. And I said, I would, re- and I remember responding like, okay, cool. Is this something that you'd want to tell the bosses then? Because, you know, I don't really know why you're telling me. I'm just here because they, they asked me to do the show type of thing. And because you got to remember at first, it wasn't like a permanent thing. They just, they, you know, I was put in and they said, okay, just do it for us. And, you know, um, but we'll see what happens down the road type right. of thing. So I just, I remember responding to people by saying, you know, they've asked me to do the show and I'm doing it right. Like, I understand you're upset, but this is, this is what it is. And, uh, so I had a lot of those where people were like, I'm, I'm not listening to you ever again, or I'm not listening to the radio station ever again. And I would say, okay, that's cool. Uh, you're replying to these people. I would, I would, yeah. I, I, I always made a point to reply to every email and I'm sure I didn't, I mean, sure. I'm sure I've missed some emails, but when somebody takes time to email you and you're on air, mm-hmm. like they're, they're invested at that point. Right. Even if they're telling you like, man, I disagree with what you're saying. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm never listening to you again. Well, you still took that minute or two or, or five to write that email and send it to me, this person somewhere in Radioland who you've never met. Like, think about that. That's an investment on behalf of that person. They're invested in whatever you just said or did or didn't say or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I always made a point to, I, I remember from day one saying, I'm going to respond to these emails. And I remember my producer at the time and all my producers through the three, just over three years that I did the show, uh, they, they were always like, why do you email these people back? Like, what are you doing? Like, you're just playing into the fire and all this. I'm like, but they're invested. Like, even though they're saying they're not going to listen, they'll be back. They'll be listening. Like, that type of thing, right? And I and I think if you respond, it helps that. I think they mm-hmm. do come back and they do listen. So, so those were the emails that first and then and and you know I, I was after some time passed i did get emails from some of the same people who flat out said that they judged too quickly and that they're back and when i left too when i when i left when i ended up leaving i got emails from people saying i was one of those people that emailed you when you started saying that i had no faith in what you were going to do and now they were emailing saying like, oh, I wish you weren't leaving type of thing, right? So That is rare for yeah. somebody to, uh, to admit they're wrong about something. It's happened once or twice anyway to me. <laughs> Not many times. When did you get a sense that, that things were starting to gel and you were getting some momentum? You felt good for the first time. Maybe, maybe you felt good early on. But when did you really feel like, wow, that was a great show? It was probably about a year in. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's probably after uh, the first year. It was rocky because you just... You, you, quite honestly, like you didn't feel ready for it, right? Like I didn't feel ready for it. I was 28. Like I was 28 years old. And I remember some people telling me that that's really young. And, and it is, it's young. And you're talking to people, you know, the demographic, as you know, of talk radio isn't 28. I mean, I don't know how many friends you have who listen to the radio on a daily basis, but I don't have many. Um, The demographic is more like 50 plus or like 45 plus. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to relate, right? Like it's it's hard for a 28-year-old to talk to a 50-year-old about politics, right? Mm -hmm. Or about some some divisive topic that they're going to basically hear you talking about and say, what the hell do you know? Stop talking about this. So that respect that that took took about a year it took it took a while before people started i think kind of really trusting me and kind of treating me like okay yeah i'll talk to this guy now right like about some things right and others and others never did right others left and i'm sure new people came and but you know that's just the way that radio works but it was tough i'd say about when i felt kind of good about a show it was probably like after a year where you're kind of settled in and and you and you know the format and you know you know what you need to do at that point you know you need to be well read you know you need to be super prepared for a topic because if something falls out from underneath you or like when a guest cancels mm-hmm. you know heaven forbid or something like that then you can just keep going you can keep talking uh, all time guests for you the the highlights when you look back on on your time in that chair uh the people that you thought wow, they were either like, either how did I get that person on the air or just how interesting their story was or how great a conversation was, the ones that jumped to mind quickly. Mm. Uh, Doug Gilmore, when I just heard you saying that, Doug Gilmore popped right into my head because Doug Gilmore was the reason why I picked up a hockey stick when I was 11, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up in Canada. 
kid from Poland growing up in Canada and loving the snow, loving the winter, loving hockey, sitting down in front of the television in 93. I guess I would have been, yeah, no, younger than that, actually. I would have been like nine, sitting down in front of the TV and seeing number 93 do his thing, right, mm-hmm. in, in a Leafs jersey. Uh, so Doug, when I had a chance to interview Doug Gilmore, it was uh, one of those holy crap moments in, in, in my career in radio where I was like actually nervous and starstruck and all those things going into that interview. And you try not to be, right? You try to play it off like, okay, man, yeah, you know, so we got Doug Gilmore on the line type of thing. Hey, Doug, how's it going, right? Mm-hmm. And then he starts talking to you and you're like, this is my childhood hero. He's actually talking to me right now, yeah. right? So that that's right up there. And he was so cool. He was so cool about it. Um, that's right up there. And then sometimes I look back now too, and I realize that, you know, I've interviewed the prime minister. Um, and, and that's cool as well, right? Because, you know, you can tell your friends that you've interviewed the prime minister, uh-huh. right? Um, you, you know, but, but there, were, there are also so many times where I remember being touched by stories because you try to do radio radio in 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 a market like kitchener waterloo you know you try to focus on the local stuff as well right and there are a lot of great local stories that happened throughout my uh three just over three years of doing the show and a lot of the people that volunteer their time to give and come up with initiatives to raise money and all that. I remember being touched a lot as well, right? By by that type of story as well. Um, Ron McLean was another one. Don Cherry. Uh, I'm a big hockey guy. Um, but also, uh, also, I got a chance to interview uh, Jim Ross. I was a I was a wrestling fan growing uh-huh. up as well, and uh, that was pretty cool because of his iconic call when the Undertaker threw mankind off the hell in a cell and went through a table. <laughs> and I remember playing that before he got on the air, and I could just see Jim Ross sitting on the other end of the line, just being like, "Oh, they're playing the clip of the Undertaker thing, right? Like this is new." But that was cool too. Yeah. What about uh, callers, all-time callers, the ones that are repeat callers that you remember by name or or somebody that just, you know, j- brings a smile to your face to get yeah. back to them calling in all the time? Oh, it's funny because, well, first of all, Terry. Um, i got to throw Terry's name out there because he anytime we talked about anything having to do with sports or, and it could have been local sports, like we could have been talking about, you know, ball diamonds and Waterloo and a little league team not being not having a chance to play because they were taking out ball diamonds or something like that terry would call in and he would give his two cents on on the ball diamonds or or you know baseball or or when he played little league or something and so i i always respected that about him because he was always there whenever we talked about that kind of stuff uh jersey bill um loved jersey bill he'd always help out with the political discussion and the debate obviously when the whole trump uh clinton thing was happening and and uh and even you know, the Canadian election with Harper and, and Trudeau you can always count on Jersey Bill to call in and, and brighten up the day with because he's just he's so well read. Right. So he he just he would always call in and just just have good points. And I always respect that about him. And there was one caller who called in that I I don't think I ever agreed on anything, Alex. And it's so funny because. Alex was one of these people where I know, I, I don't think he ever admit this or if he was here, I don't think he admitted either, but he, he didn't give me the time of day when I started that talk show. But then I started realizing that he kept calling back and back and back. And this was like, you know, let's, let's say within the last year of, of me doing the show and he'd call in all the time and uh, he'd always have something to say about what we were talking about along with a little critique of how I was doing. <laughs> and, and, and I never agreed with, with his political standpoint. He never agreed with me. But it was, always, it was always how I believe discussion should be. It was never nasty. We never insulted one another. We never uh, you know, said, hey, you, you're dumb or you're stupid for saying that. Or, or it, it was always just this agreement that we didn't agree with each other. I would let him get his point out. He would let me get my point out. And then we'd say, have a great day. And we'd do it again the next day. Right. And I respected that about him. And I think he respected that about me where it was like, he was a regular caller. He always had a differing opinion about anything. He always had a differing opinion than I did, but it was never nasty. 
It was never nasty because with some callers, it could get nasty, right? And it has a couple of times, right? Not regulars, but it has a couple of times where it's like, okay, see ya. And you hang up on someone because, you know, they're getting real nasty. But with him, it was always, it was always respectful. And, uh, and so those, those three callers right away come to mind. Yeah. What do you make of, of the media landscape today, the way that things have changed, the way it continues to adapt? What do you see as being either exciting about its future or uh, the, the landscape that you see? Uh, how much time do we have? What time? <laughs> uh, this, is, this is something that, that I've spent so, so much time thinking about because I think that there's so much wrong with the way that information is provided to the masses today. And, and I think that radio, honestly, honestly, I think radio is one is like the last kind of the last way of getting honest, honest information out to the people. And, and, and you know what? And I say maybe 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 it's local radio. Maybe, right. Let me rephrase that. Maybe it's local radio. Right. Because you have the nationally you know, syndicated shows where there are agendas and it's politically driven and all this. I'm talking about, first of all, I'm talking about Canada and I'm talking about local radio. I think it's one of the last ways of getting honest news across to people and having an honest and frank discussion uh, about whatever is happening in your town. I think it's one of the last ways of doing that. And so I think that it's not going anywhere. I think radio is always going to be around whether it changes, I mean, to digital and the way that people get it, I think honest conversation is not going anywhere. I think where the shortfalls start happening is when people who are running these industries don't see that. They, they, to do what I'm talking about well, you need resources. You need people. You need people. You need curious people to ask questions. I don't care what kind of technology you have you need curious people to, to, to ask the right questions. And so, so long as some money and can be invested in providing radio stations or, or podcast or what, or whoever with the resources so that they're able to have the, the, the person power to go out there and ask those questions. I don't think that's going anywhere because honestly, ask yourself, when has there ever been uh, a time where we needed we needed honest, credible information more than now. Sure, we need it now. Like yeah. we need it now, right? We need it right now, and I think it's it's happening. But but I think where where we start falling short is when the people that are making the decisions think that technology can kind of replace people just doing good, honest work, and I don't think it can. I I really don't think it can. So you know, what does the future hold? I don't think that conversation is going anywhere. So will it be a talk show, you know, for a station like 570 News from a 10 to a 2, uh, you know, Monday to Friday with people driving in their cars getting, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it won't look like that, but people will always be thirsty for opinion, Mm -hmm. credible, well thought out opinion. They'll always be thirsty for that. Always. I don't think that's going, going to go anywhere. Unlike the music side, which I think is a completely different conversation, I don't think that that thirst for opinion and, and well-thought-out thought opinion is going anywhere. So I think the future is bright for people who want to do it. Where did you, in your career, start to see that second chance for policing come back into the picture and start to think, or maybe it was a, th- a time process and thinking, okay, now I've had that life experience. Uh, let me try and give this, this another shot. It was... It was uh, it was timing more than anything, to be honest with you, because I was 31, right? And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this now, right? Because policing is going to be a 30-year career, hopefully. So, you, you, you know, you start thinking like, okay, getting into 35 and 40, right? What does a, what does a 30-year career look like when you're starting it at 40? Well, you're now you're talking about 70, right? So, and is that something that's, attainable or even doable in a police in a policing career I don't know so I thought to myself 31 like this has to happen now and if it happens it happens and great this is all I've wanted to do but at that point as well I was six years into a into a broadcasting career as well where I had 
kind of that comfort level to, to also know in the back of my mind that if it didn't happen, it didn't happen and this would be okay. You know, I I got to that point, right? Whereas, whereas before that, before those six years in radio, it was policing or nothing, right? Like it was always policing or nothing. But after six years in radio and kind of, you know, three in, in a talk show capacity, kind of becoming more comfortable, I still wanted to do policing, obviously. And I thought I got to do it now because I'm 31. But if it didn't happen, so I kind of had that peace of mind, right? Like, okay, if it doesn't happen, will, will there be a next time? I don't know. You know, we'll see. So, but that's that's kind of why uh, it happened when it did. Because I thought, all right, I gotta I gotta get moving on this if I want a thirty year career in policing. So, what is what is the training like that you had to undertake uh, just in order to to be eligible or to be accepted into being a police officer? It's quite lengthy, uh, to be honest with you. So, first off, there is this uh, test that you have to do and pass and obtain a certificate to then go to a police service mm-hmm. and apply with. So this isn't, so you're doing a test. Is like, it written or physical or, or it's both? both. Okay. It's both. Yeah. So there's, there's like three, I think there's three or four components to the written aspect of it. And then there's a physical test. Uh, and then, well, and then there's an eye test, a hearing test. And uh, so they kind of end a behavioral assessment. So the, the, this is all prior to applying to a police service. Yeah. And it's called the ATS testing. Uh, and so you, you do that. It's a third party company that kind of uh, administers those tests. And then once you pass all that, which typically takes about three months and what are the parts of that what are the components of like the physical requirements that involved is it is it uh doing lifts of things is it endurance like jogging is what what do they have you doing so they they have uh the physical side of it it's a uh circuit training course so it's like an like a little obstacle course where um where you're you have a time limit i think it's two minutes and 30 seconds to run I think it's four or five laps of this course and in it involves running up and down stairs and hopping over like a four foot fence and yeah. you're wearing a vest to simulate the equipment that police would wear yeah. while you're doing it. Uh, there's a dummy drag uh, aspect of it and then that portion finishes and you get a 10 minute break and then you run the beep test, uh, which we, I'm sure we've all done in high school, right? Uh-huh. Where, you know, it beeps and then you got to get to a, like a level seven and a half on the beep test. And once you do that, you're good. And then that's, uh, you have that for six months. So then you can apply with that certificate to a police service, but you have to update your physical every six months if you're not hired before then, right? And and it's rare that you are because the hiring process with police services is like 12 months. So you have to redo the physical uh, at least once. Mm -hmm. And that's if you're successful the first time that you apply to a police service, right? And then with the written stuff, it's like your grade, grade 12 math and reading and writing and uh, there's like a collision reconstruction that you have to do where they kind of just jumble up a collision that happens and, and they kind of throw the timelines off and you got to reconstruct all of it and then say who's at fault. Uh, so it's, a, it's you know, syllogisms and patterns and matching things. A lot of that kind of stuff's involved with it. And once you pass that, you get your Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police certificate. And the, the writing part is those are all good for three years. But it's the physical that you have to update every six months. And once you get that, then you can apply to any police service in Ontario. Okay, so you apply then. Is there more testing after that? Or have you already done the bulk? <laughs> There's more. No, no. It's, it basically <laughs> starts all over again once you apply. So once you choose a police service that you want to apply to with that certificate, you fill out their application process. And then it varies based on service. Some like Waterloo Regional uh, has uh, a spelling test that they make you do, right? They want to make sure that you can spell words because you'd be surprised like if you ask any person walking down the street now to spell occurred, you know, you think you know how to spell it, but trust me, put a pen to a paper nowadays and occurred isn't as easy as you might think, right? So because on the phone, everything just, you know, auto corrects itself, right? So, uh, you know, so for example, Waterloo Regional has a, a, another spelling test that you have to do. They make you write out an essay as well to see your, if you can, you know, form sentence structures and, and paragraphs and, and whatnot. So there's that. Uh, and then once you kind of pass that, there is, again, it differs from police service to police service, but most services have minimum, I would say, two, but most have three 
interviews that you have to do. So you're going through three different uh, interviews after that. Uh, and what, that's just personality then, or what, what are they trying to assess you? Yeah, on? yeah. So the first one is like uh, the first one is kind of a get to know you, kind of uh, every kind of job style interview, right? So it's like, hey, you know, who are you? What are you all about? And why are you interested in working here? That type of thing, right? Yeah. They call it the fo- local focus. What your 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 uh, your character flaws are? Yeah. What's, what's the classic one they ask you? Right, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, My weaknesses. Weaknesses, yeah. yeah. What are what are your weaknesses, type of thing? So it's it's uh, it's you know your standard kind of half hour you know uh, interview, and then once you pass that, there's a what you get into is an essential competencies interview, which is more in the realm of two to three hours, and it's with two recruiters, and basically. It's example-based questions. So, you know, it's like uh, you have to hit certain competencies when they ask you questions. So they might ask you, you know, tell me of a time when style questions, right? Tell me of a time when you uh, had to show restraint. Something happened in your life and how did you deal with it? Did you did you lash out? Did you get physical? You know, how did you deal with it, for example? Uh, so... So it, it, so it's called an ECI, an Essential Competencies Interview. And then if you get through that, uh, then you do a chief of police interview where you meet with the chief or designate. And uh, it's kind of like a, the final one, right? Like recruiting gets so many people up to that point. Then they send them off to the chief and the chief says, okay, let's see who they're sending me here and let's and, and I'll, I'll kind of make the final decision, right? And that's service-based too. It's not every service does that. Some services do that, so. So things go right for you. You get accepted. What, what was that ceremony like? The, is it a swearing-in ceremony or the, you get your, your badge, I suppose, when well, that happens? Well, not, not, until, not, not until you go to the Ontario Police College. So once you get hired... You go away for 13 weeks to Almer, Ontario, just outside of London, and you're there for 13 weeks. Uh, you're living there, and you're basically that's where you're training the basics of how to be a constable in Ontario. Every police officer in the province has gone through Almer, has gone through OPC. So that's where you're learning firearms that's where you're learning use of force that's where you're learning your federal provincial statutes that's where you're learning the criminal code the highway traffic act the trespass to property act the child and family services act uh you know and so on and so forth right that's where you're learning all of that in third uh, pvo police vehicle operations uh you know you dr- you're driving there's a track out there right they, they have you doing scenarios they hire actors to come in and 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 play emotionally distressed people and and uh, you know people who've just con- uh, conducted a break-in or whatever right they come up with these scenarios so you go you do that for 13 weeks uh there's a midterm and a final there you pass that then you come back to your service uh and then again there's another five weeks of training so with waterloo there was another five weeks of training back in-house after OPC, where they kind of taught you more service-specific things, whereas OPC is kind of just general, like here's generally how, you're, how, how police officers operate, and then you go back to your service, and they say, here's how we operate in this service, right? So there's more training after that. And in the middle of that training was the badging ceremony. So a long, a long road. <laughs> it's, 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 it's approximately, all, all in all, from the moment from that ATS testing to getting your badge, it's it's approximately twelve months, which is probably you want a long road to have people yeah, that are qualified sure. in that position. Yeah. yeah, you yeah no you absolutely do. I mean I don't th- I think it should be like that. I mean I, I don't think it should be just kind of your standard. Hey, uh, you know let's interview this person for half an hour forty minutes and call them back and you know hey come in and start on Monday. There's so much to know. Uh, there there's I mean we we don't have enough time to talk about how much there is to know in terms like with the laws alone like you have to know these things if you're going to be going to calls you have to be able to recognize offenses and the elements to an offense do you have an assault do you not have an assault did a robbery occur here what's the difference between a robbery and a theft like that type of thing right like you have to know all those things Mm -hmm. otherwise you kind of look foolish out there right so um like the opp as an example they do an extra (laughs) they do an extra eight weeks of training post OPC so they do the 13 weeks they come back for an 8 week training period so 
At some point, you're, you're itching to hit the road, though, because you want to put these things into practice, too, right? So, uh, What was the first day on the job, then? Like, what, what, what did they have you doing? The first day on the job was um, uh, I went into briefing. Uh, that's my dog with the, with the squeaky toy. I went into briefing. Uh, staff sergeant uh, went through the briefing. And uh, my coach officer uh, said, okay, let's uh, hop in a car. And... Uh, we went into the car. We were logging onto our system, logging onto the computer, and we got a message uh, from uh, Staff Sergeant uh, saying, hey, uh, down in our uh, cell block, there's somebody who needs to go to the hospital. You guys need to go with him. Uh, so the ambulance is on their way. And so we didn't even sign into our computer yet. And an ambulance showed up, and there was a, uh, a young man who was going through a, a, re- a real hard time. And, um, uh, you know, without getting into all the specifics, he, he needed to go to the hospital. And I rode in the back of the ambulance to the hospital with him. And we spent our entire shift uh, in the hospital with, with him. That was my first shift. So I spent the entire shift in the hospital. Since then, what's been the typical day for you? If there is a typical day, you're, you're going out in a, in a, a car with another officer? Or what do yeah. they have you do? Yeah, yeah. So right now, so, so there's a... Do you want? Do we want to pause? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so there was, a, there was, a, there, there is no. I wouldn't say there's a typical shift, but I am with a coach officer right now, um, who I will be with for sixty shifts. So I'm about halfway through that right now, and uh, what that kind of entails is taking what they say and kind of trying to trying to put it into practice right i mean that's 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 the best way i can put it because there's just so much to know you're kind of watching it's a, there, there's a lot of watching going on um i mean they're letting you kind of do things and and start to kind of take control of calls and and do them but for the most part there's a there is a lot of watching and listening and seeing how somebody with 10 12 years of experience conducts themselves uh in, in a call with an interaction right so i do 60 shifts with a coach officer Typical day, you know, we start out, it's, it's fairly steady. It's, it's pretty much call to call. We go to a call, we clear the call, we do some notes, we go to the next call, we clear the call, we do so. I mean, it's, it's fairly steady, it's pretty busy. Um, so, but in terms of calls, you can't predict those, right? Everything. Everything, everything, you know, there's, there's a lot mental health is a, is a big, is a big um, call right now. Those happen a lot where people are in distress because they have mental health issues. And um, we're very lucky. We have CMH workers, uh, nurses that work on our shift, who we can call out, who are a little bit more trained than we are in terms of talking with people. So there have been a lot of those. Uh, so, so there isn't really, there has, I can't pinpoint down kind of a typical shift Mm -hmm. at this point because it varies quite a bit. Have you been recognized by somebody yet as being, oh, that's Eric from, from the 570 beforehand as, as you're in uniform now? It's happened twice. Uh, and the, the first time it was, uh, I pulled someone over and, uh, and as I, and as I approached the window, uh, we were chatting and they noticed my name on my vest and they said, is that, they said, is that Eric Droz from the radio? And I said, yeah. And they said, you're a talk show host and a, and a cop? And I, said, and I said, no, I haven't been a talk show host since April. And they said, oh, I thought you're still on the radio, right? I'm like, no, that's Mike Farwell now. So, you know, it was just one of those things, right, where, where people, it takes people quite a bit to figure out that, uh, that you're not on the radio anymore, right? But I guess they remember me talking about it on the radio, so... As far as you're, a lot of people are concerned, you're still in the midst of a radio career. Right? That's right. Yeah. It, it is funny to think about how how uh, your radio career seems to go on past your own career. Uh, I know that happens to me too, and people still think that, that they swear they yeah. were he- hearing me yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you how have you replaced that that part of your life when you're you've got an audience, you're talking to people all day long? Uh, are you talking in the cruiser to your to your your officer nonstop, uh, or how is how have you replaced that part of yourself? You know, you know what? Um, there are so many calls that we go to, where at the end of the day, the way I look at it is that it, it was all communication. It's all communication. It's all about having the ability to talk to people. So yes, on the radio, obviously, that was the main part of the job was to come in and communicate with people for four hours and 
and hopefully keep them entertained and a little bit informed and get their opinions on things. Really, at the end of the day, it's not really any different other than maybe the entertainment part. Uh, it's, it's not really all that much different when there is a call for service. When there is a call for service, you show up and then you say to the person, what's going on? And they start talking to you and you start talking to them. And, and together you try to figure out a solution to whatever the problem is. So honestly, I don't feel like I'm missing that much mm-hmm. in terms of that communication because it's such a huge aspect of policing. That's the number one thing, right? That in, even in the training, the number one thing that's focused on is not the pistol on your hip or the taser it's your mouth right it's your it's the ability to communicate to people that's the number one thing that's the number one thing that's drilled into your head in training so in terms of missing that communication i can't say that i do the 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 one thing that's changed is my social media presence which is uh which isn't necessarily a bad thing probably healthy (laughs) probably it's probably healthier actually you're probably right uh but but i do find that i'm not i'm not following um, I'm not following news outside of Canada as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I, I had this thought the other day uh, where I focused a lot on American politics. And, you know, you get wrapped up into it, right? When, mm-hmm. when you're in the news, when you're doing the news, you get wrapped up in, in headlines and you get wrapped up in, in, did you hear what this person said? When you're out of it, I'm realizing that I still focus because that's just my personality on news that affects me but not so much news headlines per se from across the globe or, or does that make sense or from, from the States. So that's one big change. But in terms of the communication, I would say I don't feel like it's changed that much. Uh, Maybe we'll finish with this best part of the job for you. The best part of the job is the interaction with people. For me, uh, hands down, that's the best part of the job uh, is interacting with people. To me, uh, I was asked a question at one of my interviews, like, and it was a simple question, uh, like, okay, so, so, you know, why do you want to be a police officer, right? And and I remember thinking to myself, um, I like I like helping people, but I didn't leave it at that. But I like helping people at anything that's going wrong. Like when when there's an emergency, when there's a quote unquote nine on one call, to many people they might see that call, or if they heard about the call and they say, okay, so. They had a disagreement with their daughter. Okay, what's the big deal, right? But the way I look at it is to that person at that particular point in time, it's an emergency. Whatever's happened for that person to pick up a phone Mm -hmm. and call 911, that is a huge thing that's happening in their life at that point. Mm -hmm. And I like going to those things and trying to help that person work through whatever, whether it's, it's an actual emergency or a perceived emergency, to them it's an emergency. And I like treating it that way. So that's my favorite part of the job, bar none, is going to, to calls and helping people work through whatever state of crisis they're in. That's the best part about it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can do one better and leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show. If you're new to Story Untold, there's lots more to listen to and more on the way. Next week, listen in for the story of a man and his dog and the incredible fate that brought them together. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.